quite the bad rap these days. In 21st century America, evangelists are dreaded more than dictionary salesmen, and seeking to convert people seems downright prideful and demeaning. I mean, who are you to try to convince me to change my life? And yet the fact remains that really in all areas of life, as humans, we are, we are born convincers. That is, we're constantly going around trying to convince people of certain views. And we do it so often that we usually fail to notice it. Whether it's about how great the latest Top Gun movie is, or what the best Indian restaurant is in town, or who the greatest basketball player of all time is, we are regularly trying to convince one another to even convert to our point of view. And so when it comes to religion, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that this impulse comes out. And when it comes to Christianity, missions and ministry is a natural reaction for those of us who believe that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is baked into Christianity is this impulse of telling others, working to convince others. And so far from this idea beginning with Jesus' followers, we find that it actually begins with Jesus himself. That's what we'll discover today in our passage in Mark chapter 6. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. We'll be in Mark 6, verses 6 to 32. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus anointed as the Christ, that is the King of Israel, when God the Father anointed God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. And then for the past six chapters, we've seen Jesus teach and heal. We've seen him exercise demons, forgive the sins of a paralytic. He's called people to follow him. And yet all these works have not been universally well received, have they? from the religious leaders to the crowds, from Jesus' family and hometown to even his own hand-picked apostles. The response to Jesus has been mixed. People keep asking, who is Jesus? And they keep coming to different conclusions. And in the past two weeks in particular, we've seen Jesus' might on display as he subdued the wind and the waves, and then he conquered the demoniac, the legion of demons. And then last week, his mercy was on display as he healed two daughters in Israel. In all this, Mark has been showing us our need to respond in faith and not fear because of who Jesus is. And so we arrive at Mark 6, 6b, that is the second half of verse 6 this morning. We'll go through verse 32, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Faithful Christian ministry follows Jesus' example and endures persecution. Faithful Christian ministry follows Jesus' example and endures persecution. So read with me, beginning in the second half of Mark 6.6. 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, 
no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask of me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Amen. Well, this sermon should really be titled, Principles for Christian Ministry, because that's what this whole passage is about, Principles for Christian Ministry, and we're going to have 12 points this morning. So we're going to kind of drill in on these, and this is going to be a fairly application-heavy sermon as we think about how we apply these principles as a brand new church plant. And when I say Christian ministry, I mainly mean the kind of ministry that we all do as Christians. But then sometimes I'm going to narrow it to specifically talk about vocational ministry. So I'll let you figure out the difference. But that's just kind of, I'm operating with both of those definitions. So with that in mind, beginning the second half of verse 6, we read, And he went about the villages teaching. As we've noted, Jesus came primarily to teach about the kingdom of God. Right? He's not primarily a miracle worker or healer. So Mark gave us the prototypical sermon of Jesus in chapter 1. 
in verse 14 when he reported, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is Jesus' message, what he's been preaching, what he is teaching around these villages. And so the first thing to note about Christian ministry, Christian missions, Christian missionary, blah, ministry, is that Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model. You know, Jesus was the first missionary. We just follow in his footsteps. As Jesus taught and ministered, so we, his disciples, are to teach and minister. His, disciple, his priorities are to be our priorities. His message is to be our message. Jesus is the model. And this brings us to our second point in verse 7. Look there. And he called the twelve and began to send them out. So second, in Christian ministry and missions... Missionaries are the God-called and God-sent. They're God-called and God-sent. You recall that this is almost identical language to what Jesus had initially called his disciples, his apostles, to in chapter 3. So in chapter 3 we read, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out. So here in chapter 6, this is just the fulfillment of what Jesus had always intended his followers to be doing. He called them to vocational ministry, and now he was sending them out to do just that. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we all have been called to be followers of Jesus. We're called to be with him, just like the early apostles. And now, every single one of us, well, we have been sent. We've sent to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. In our families, and in our neighborhood, and in our workplaces. This is something that applies to all of us, being called and sent. And yet, it does particularly apply to those considering vocational ministry. That is, there are certain men and certain women that God calls out of secular work and into vocational ministry work. Not because secular work is wrong or sinful, not at all. Nobody bids them come and serve him vocationally, full-time, in that way. How do you know if God is calling you to that work? Well, for these 12 apostles, their call to ministry was unique, right? In how verifiable and obvious it was. In our day, it's less so. What does it look like today to be called and sent into vocational ministry? Well, oftentimes people talk, to, uh, talk about what's known as the internal call to ministry and an external call to ministry. Uh, that is, internally, do you have a desire to serve Christ in this way? Right? Because it's certainly not the only way that you can serve Christ. All of us in our families and neighborhoods and workplaces, should be seeking to serve Christ, right? So vocational ministers haven't cornered the market on that. Now we should all be seeking to be salt and light, speaking the truth of God's word as God gives us opportunity. But 
for these individuals, is there a special desire and passion to teach people the truths of God's word? To herald the gospel of Christ crucified and risen and reigning? To comfort the mourning? To serve the church? That, that's the internal calling or internal desire, uh, but that is a necessary but not sufficient quality to go into vocational ministry. The second thing you need is external calling. That's how some people put it. That is, does anyone else think you should go into full-time ministry? Right? I might have this really strong desire to go play for the New England Patriots. That does not necessarily mean it's a good idea. I would get crunched in a second. Right? So does anyone else think it's a good idea? As you talk to family and friends, and you ask them if they've benefited spiritually from their relationship with you. Uh, have they seen evidences of grace in your character? Is there a track record of faithfulness and even fruitfulness in the ministries and relationships that you have invested in? Jesus called these 12 apostles, and so it looks different in our way, uh, but let me encourage you, if you have questions about this, uh, to come talk to me. Uh, if you have a desire to potentially go into vocational ministry, I would love to talk with you. Jesus called the 12 apostles, and then we note that he also sent them out, right? As Jesus said after his resurrection in John 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So again, this applies to all of us as believers, but it applies especially to those going into vocational ministry. I think we see this, this dual reality of calling and sending in Acts 13. And it's a famous passage. Acts 13 verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So notice that both calling and sending take place in the context of the local church. That is, Barnabas and Saul are neither self-called to the work nor self-sent. No, they're sent by and through the local church. And so here at Trinity, we desire to be a church that God would use to both call and send men and women into vocational ministry, making disciples all over the world. Right? So we want to make disciples in Bedford and Middlesex County and New England and all across the globe. We want to make disciples in places like Algeria and North Korea and the Philippines and Colombia and England and everywhere in between. This is what it means to be called, God called, and God sent. The third mark of Christian missions, and my numbers are all mixed up. I was like, you know, deleting and adding and separating. So if the, if the numbers get wrong, just roll with it. I think we're on the third mark of Christian missions. All right, I'm getting a head nod. Is that two is better than one. Two is better than one. Or perhaps better stated, a plurality is better than solitary. Verse seven states, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. In Christian ministry and missions, Jesus was no fool in sending his apostles out in pairs. 
Because Ecclesiastes 4 states, two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. In short, in the Christian ministry, as well as in the Christian life, we, we need one another, don't we? And especially for those in vocational ministry, due to the spiritual nature of that calling, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual authorities, well, there is a special need for companionship and encouragement and accountability and counsel. There's a special need to not be alone in ministry. And Jesus knew this. So how are we trying to apply this at Trinity Church of Bedford? Well, first, I think we should notice that we're not in sin for not having multiple pastors here as a church. Uh, Notice that Ecclesiastes say that two is better than one. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we see in, for example, Titus 1, you can have a church without a pastor. Not a good idea long term, but you can. So I don't think we're in sin by having fewer than two pastors. Yet at the same time, it would not be wise to stay this way for very long. Because Ecclesiastes is right. Two is better than one. That's why Dane and Curtis, the two senior pastors of our sending churches, have, be, have been serving in an advisory role. There are any number of questions that come up on a weekly basis that, frankly, I just don't have the wisdom or godliness or experience to answer on my own. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, uh, one, th- one kind of immediate application is pray for me. Pray for me. As a solo pastor, pray that the Lord would protect me from error and sin and foolishness. Pray that the Lord would give me a steady hand and a soft heart and thick skin. Uh, Thank you for uh, for everyone who does give me counsel and encouragement. Just this morning, Dan and I were talking. uh, I was saying, hey, what, what should we do about the visitor card? Should we keep doing them? Should we not keep doing them? Should we do a perforated paper? I don't know. What? I mean, it's a small thing, but it's really helpful for Dan to be like, well, what about this? What about that? That's really helpful. So thank you to all the brothers and sisters who have given me encouragement and counsel uh, these past couple months. Pray as well that the Lord would raise up other elders to shoulder the shepherding load. Uh, Pray in particular for the men of this church, that they would be qualified biblically uh, to be elders, should the Lord call them to that work. This isn't something that should be rushed uh, any more than you can rush the raising up of your children, right? The Lord's just gonna do it. Uh, But pray that the Lord would do it. That's number three. Number four, a fourth mark of Christian ministry, Jesus gives authority. Jesus gives authority. Again, notice at the end of verse seven. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. In Christian ministry, we have a derived authority, not an inherent one, right? So what I mean by that is that as Christians, we are not in and of ourselves authoritative. 
No, in and of ourselves, we're rebels. We're treasonous traitors, lawbreakers. Yet now in the gospel, God has reconciled us to himself through the blood of his son. And now he has instituted us, even us, as his representatives here on earth. So that, I mean, I know this is crazy, but we have the same authority as Christ. Can you imagine that? Here again, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Trinity Church of Bedford, this is incredible. That when someone becomes a Christian, Jesus gives them his authority. He says, you represent me. You've been baptized into the triune name. You've come to identify with the triune God. And now I give my authority to you. Use it well. This is true for the individual Christian. It's true especially for local churches. This is why Christians can take the gospel into closed, hostile countries. Right? Though a government may not want the gospel there, we have it on higher authority that Jesus wants it there. And so we take it. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, not the North Korean government. This is also why if someone ever says to you when you're sharing the gospel, you know, they say it in various iterations, but something to the effect of, well, you have no right to judge me. Well, they're kind of right. It's kind of wrong. Right? In and of ourselves, we're totally fellow sinners. Totally, we like them stand under the judgment of God in need of his grace, no better than you or anyone else in any way. We have no right to pass judgment in and of ourselves. But because of Christ, we now have received authority. So that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. Check this out. God making his appeal through us. That's crazy. That as we speak the gospel in Concord on Saturday mornings, as we speak the gospel to our children, as we speak the gospel in our workplaces, God is making his appeal through us. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and he has authority to judge. And so we should go out boldly in that authority. Jesus gives authority. Fifth mark of Christian ministry is found in verses 8 to 10. That ministers should depend upon the generosity of God's people. Ministers should depend upon the generosity of God's people. Look there at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart there from there. Here we see that heralds of the gospel should depend upon and receive the support and provision of those being ministered to. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Or as Jesus will explicitly state in Luke 10, 
the laborer deserves his wages. So, brothers and sisters, I'm probably not the last pastor you are going to have, right? Either you will move, or this church will get shut down, or something will happen to me. But statistically, other than my wife, you will most likely have another pastor other than me. So let me, in all boldness and all humility, encourage you to do exactly what Paul and Jesus commanded, to share all good things with those who teach you the word. Uh, The laborer deserves his wages. For those giving themselves full time to proclaiming the gospel, they shouldn't have to rely on making their own bread, their own bag, their own money, their own tunics, as it were. Uh, The responsibility of all of us who sit under God's word is to fulfill Titus 3.13, which is to see to it that they lack nothing. So, obviously, there are two, you know, errors here on both extremes. The first is to say, we're going to keep the pastor or missionary or campus minister or Bible translator or whatever. We'll keep him or her poor, and God will keep him humble, right? Jesus is literally saying the exact opposite. You should provide for what he needs. But the second error is to lavishly pay gospel ministers, right? Did you notice that Jesus expects the basic needs of ministers to be met by the people? That is the normal ones. So there is no warrant here for pastors needing private jets or mega mansions with six-car garages or anything like that. Because this error is so serious and so heinous, we we need to be really careful uh, not to swing the pendulum in either direction, right? People can be so burned from the prosperity gospel, they just think, well, we're just not going to pay pastors. That's a bad idea for the advance of the Great Commission. But you can also swing where you see, oh man, ministry people have been neglected. Let's just, you know, yeah, they totally need private jets. Uh, Brothers and sisters, as someone who sat personally under really, really, really great pastors and not so great ones. I'm going to go out on a limb, but I think I can confidently state that a good pastor is worth his weight in gold. I'm not saying that you should pay him his weight in gold, but I am saying that for the good of your own soul, for the evangelism of your own children, because of your love for your neighbors and the unbelievers around you. If you find a man who is a faithful and qualified and zealous minister of the gospel, well, there's nothing better than making sure that man is able to minister full time. The same applies to campus ministers and missionaries and all the rest, right? We don't want Christian missionaries being so busy having to raise support that they're hardly ever overseas because they're always here trying to raise support. Uh, we want to be those who, who are generous. We, you know, we pay for Christian music and Christian books. We go on Christian retreats. We build Christian buildings. And all these are great. But nothing is better for your soul than a faithful, godly, and zealous minister of the gospel. So Christian ministers should depend upon the generosity of God's people. That's number five. The sixth thing we notice about Christian ministry is found in verse 11. Expect rejection. Expect rejection. We read, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, 
When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. In short, in all faithful Christian ministry, as in Jesus' own ministry, some people will receive the message and it'll be really great, and others will not. And this is normal. There are some people today who seem to think that if in our evangelism people don't always receive the gospel, well, that somehow guarantees we made a mistake. They seem to think that we did something wrong, that we need to change the message to make sure they respond favorably. But Jesus is under no such illusion. He understands that some people will reject the preaching of the gospel. The shaking off of the dust is basically a sign of judgment, saying your house hold is not part of the kingdom of God. And of course, we should never relish this as Christians. It should break our hearts. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, or to one, a fragrance from death to death, but to the other, a fragrance of life to life. That is, brothers and sisters, we are to always be the aroma of Christ wherever we go, whatever we do, as a congregation corporately, but individually as we scatter throughout the week. But whether people think that is the sweet fragrance of life or the awful stench of death, well, that's not up to us. We're simply to be faithful as the aroma of Christ. So and then verses 12 and 13, we see the apostles begin to minister. Notice that they call people to repent because you can't begin to follow Jesus until you have begun to repent of your sin. But then our passage gets interrupted right in the middle of this description of the ministry of Jesus' apostles, Mark plops down the story of John the Baptist, seemingly out of nowhere. Why would he do this? Well, friends, because we get another one of those famous Markin sandwiches. It's where Mark begins a story, he interrupts that story, and then he resumes the story. And he does that to communicate that that, that middle story is connected to the outside parts, uh, the meat, as it were. You should pay attention there. So in verses 30 to 32, we get the final part of the Mark and sandwich. Uh, Mark returns to describe the apostles returning to Jesus. But here in verses 14 to 29, we get the story of the death of John the Baptist. So again, why has Mark inserted this story here? Well, it's to communicate our seventh mark of Christian ministry, namely to expect persecution expect persecution. That's what we find in these 15 verses, and the very, the very length of this section communicates that, that really Mark intends for this to be the emphasis of his description on what it means to minister the gospel. You know, yes, you should go out two by two. Teachers of the gospel should be supported by those hearing the word. Yes, of course, we need to, uh, you know, be bold in calling people to repent but mainly, brothers and sisters, we need to expect persecution. A normal part of following Jesus and heralding God's kingdom is opposition 
the gospel. Not just rejection, but a, a click tighter than that. Opposition. So notice in verses 14 to 16 uh, that Herod, who was king over the region of Galilee at the time, well, he and others have heard about Jesus, and they're asking a question. They're asking a basic question. They're asking a question that many other characters have been asking these past six chapters. They're asking, who is Jesus? Right? You notice that? They're saying, oh, maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. They're asking the same question we've been asking all along. And so Herod thinks that Jesus was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. And why had John died? Well, it was because he was persecuted for righteousness sake. John the Baptist was martyred for speaking the truth about God's design for sexuality and marriage. And the cost was initially his imprisonment and eventually it was his life. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that as we stand up for the truth of God's word, generally, but even specifically, related to God's design for marriage and sexuality, uh, we too should expect persecution. As a Christian, you may lose your job because you hold the line on biblical sexuality. Because you're a Christian, you may be slandered or ridiculed in the local newspaper or in your neighborhood or in your family. Because they are Christians, men and women and boys and girls die as martyrs every single week because they're following the Lord Jesus. So this is a reality, not just for John the Baptist's day. Uh, it's a reality today in our world as well. Whether that persecution is martyrdom or it's more like the persecution First Peter was about, which is about slander and ridicule and th- social pressure, things like that. We should expect persecution. Notice you know, some interesting things. In verse 20, it says that when Herod heard him, he heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? Herod could hear sermons, hear them gladly, but that gladness not lead to repentance. You know, it's possible to hear the word of God, to enjoy listening to sermons, but not to put it into practice. Faith without works is dead. Don't confuse the enjoyment of listening to God's word with a humble, submissive, repentant reception of it. Because Herod didn't repent, right? In verses 21 to 27, we see Herod submit to the murderous wishes of his wife, just as King Ahab had done in the scripture reading with Queen Jezebel. In both cases, the men are wickedly submissive to their wives and submitting to their evil designs. Notice especially verse 26, after Herod found out about the girl's wish, And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Friends, notice what fear of man will do to you. Notice the cost it has on your own life and the lives of those around you. When you're afraid of the opinions of others, when you're afraid of disappointing them, when you're more afraid of their opinion of you, then God's opinion of you, well, it will lead you to do foolish and evil things. 
uh, to the kids in the room. I know sometimes it's hard if your friends want you to do one thing, but you know God's word says to do something else. Let me encourage you to obey God, even when it's costly, even when other people want you to do something different. Here in the fulfillment of Herodias's wish, we see Herod massively misusing the authority that God has given him. Do you remember what Jonathan had read for us in question 105 of the Heidelberg Catechism? God gives the sword to government to prevent murder. Think about how Herod and Herodias get that backwards. They use their authority to create murder. They use the sword for sinful, selfish, and evil purposes. Uh, This is why we pray for governing authorities every, every week. I wonder if you noticed that, how we pray for those in authority over us. God tells us to in 1 Timothy 2, and so we do so. We also do so because we know our own hearts, don't we? How often are we tempted to use our own authority for our own selfish ends? Whether at home or at church or in the workplace or in the community, uh, we are tempted to use our positions of prominence and power to do what's best for us, but not necessarily what's best for those under our charge and under our care. And so here we see, though John had been faithful to the Lord, that didn't exempt him from suffering. Rather, it brought it on. 2 Timothy 3.12 states that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. All who desire. And yet we shouldn't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon us. And neither should we be discouraged. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, whether you are reviled or imprisoned, slandered or slaughtered, we may rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. We can be glad in Christ even as we expect persecution. So John's disciples then take his body and lay it in a tomb. And then Mark returns in verse 30 to go back to the apostles for his final descriptions of Christian ministry. So this is where we get our eighth mark of Christian ministry in Mark 6, 30. We read, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. This is our eighth mark of Christian ministry. Expect to give a report to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, did you know that all of us all of us as Christians, we will all be judged on the last day. We will, all of us, stand before the Lord Christ and give an account for our lives. We're certainly not justified by our works. Right? We're not saved by our good deeds. If that was the case, nobody would be saved. But the books will indeed be opened and all our deeds will be laid bare. It will all be made plain before the Lord. You know, we know this. For example, from the parable of the talents, wherein the master commends or rebukes certain servants for how 
they were faithful or not, how they stewarded the resources given to them. And so it applies to all of us as believers. We all will give a report for what we've done and what we've said in this life. For however many years the Lord gives us, we're going to have an accounting with the Lord. And yet, standing before the judgment seat of Christ and giving a report on one's life and ministry is an especially prominent reality for Christian ministers. James 3, 1 states, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And Hebrews 13 states, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. For the minister of the gospel, there is ever before him on his calendar a date. There is an appointment that will brook no rivals. It will not be moved or canceled. It is the judgment seat of Christ. It is the accounting of the ministry entrusted to him. Has he faithfully ministered God's word? Has he kept watch over all the sheep whom the Holy Spirit has made him an overseer? Has he taught the word with accuracy and patience? The 12 apostles returned and gave a report to Jesus, and so too will we all give an accounting to him. But again, pray especially for me. Pray for your pastors. Uh, pray for other Christian ministry leaders that you know. Pray that they would be faithful. And on that last day, that they would not have any reason to be ashamed. The ninth mark of the Christian ministry is expect to be tired. If you're doing it right, expect to be tired. Look at verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Brothers and sisters, if you are faithfully serving Christ, you should expect to be tired. In a world sick with sin and afflicted in various ways, with our own bodies that decay and our minds that get hazy, with sin still infecting our own souls and our faith so feeble at times, we should expect to be tired. You know, tiredness is not a sign that you're on the wrong path in the Christian life. In fact, it might be the sign that you're on the right one. Jesus' followers were so busy teaching and serving and caring for others that they didn't even have time to eat. They care for their own basic needs because they were serving others. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, I don't know about you, but these last couple of few months have been a little exhausting. Don't get me wrong. I think it's been the best three months of my life. But it's exhausting. I was up till 2 a.m. preparing the sermon. I was up at 7 a.m. getting ready. I believe we shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be discouraged. As George Whitfield said, I'm never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. Uh, may Christ give us strength for the work that he's called us to. May he give us endurance in it. This brings us to our 10th and final mark of Christian ministry. Expect Jesus to give you rest. 
expect Jesus to give you rest. Notice how verse 32 concludes. That is, uh, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. That is, they went to rest. It's really interesting. There are legitimate, pressing needs all around them. And they still said, we're going away. They retreated for reprieve. And so to everyone serving here at the church, to everyone serving in their families, uh, to everyone serving the Lord in their workplaces and in their communities, uh, be encouraged. If you're a little tired, the Lord knows. The Lord knows your faithful labor. He isn't ignorant of it. He delights in it. He rejoices in the imperfect obedience of his people, the ministry that we have, and he will give you rest. Because did you notice whose idea it was to get away? Look there in verse 31. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Beloved, God is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not like Pharaoh demanding bricks without straw. No, the Lord Jesus knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust and he cares for us. He gives us the rest we need in this life in fits and spurts, and he will one day usher us into his eternal rest where we will get what we most desire and what he's most fundamentally called us to, to be with him. Did you notice that? They went away, not just to some tropical vacation. They went, about, they went away to be with him. He was there to encourage them, to rejoice in their victories, to weep over their sorrows, to be with them as their friend and their teacher and their savior and Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, we return to where this list started. In the Christian ministry, Jesus is the model. He is the example. Because notice how Jesus exemplified these 10 marks. He was called and sent by God the Father. He was accompanied by the Holy Spirit. He received authority from God the Father and as the resurrected Lord. He was dependent upon the generosity of his followers, yet he often experienced rejection. Most of all, though, he it was, though tired and weary from the course of his ministry, he it was, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the innocent one who suffered persecution even unto death. He bore our sins in his body and died on the cross to bear God's wrath in our place. And then his followers also laid him in a tomb. But then the rumors of resurrection would prove to be much more than rumors. As he rose from the dead on the third day, as he took his Sabbath rest from his labors, so now he calls his people to come to him. Brothers and sisters, it's the fact that Jesus overcame persecution that gives us such hope. In the Christian life, in the Christian ministry, that is marked by opposition, we can have hope because whether we are opposed or persecuted for proclaiming the gospel, if we have trust for the forgiveness of our sins in Christ, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. All they can do is kill us. Because of Christ, we needn't be afraid. He has paid our debt. He has conquered death. And now we can rest in him. 
If you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to trust in Christ today, to believe upon this Savior. And for us who have believed, may we be encouraged to serve faithfully until Christ returns in whatever he calls us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful in the ministry you've called us to. Help us to do it for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand now and sing as we conclude, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. So let me encourage you to stand as we sing on page 15, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. <laughs>